0: The incompatibility of suffering with an all-powerful and all-good God only works if you assume that avoiding suffering is the ultimate good, that there are no goods that supersede it. You are listening to Holy Words from Holy Cross the sermon podcast of Holy Cross Evangelical Lutheran Church in Nazareth, Pennsylvania. We hope you find these words a blessing in your daily walk with God. Please visit us on the web at www.holycrossnazareth.org or in person at 696 Johnson Road, Nazareth, Pennsylvania. Be thou my vision, O Lord of my heart. Don't be all My sermon this day is long overdue. One of the wonderful people who's been a mentor and a model for me in my life was Bernard O'Connor, whom I met my very first year in ministry in 1996. Father O'Connor came in as part of a peacekeeping force into a congregation that had seen much conflict And he sort of took me under his wing, as he did many young pastors and pastors-to-be. In fact, when I met him, he was supervising seven people getting their doctorates in theology, none of them Roman Catholic like he was, all of them Protestant. Over the next eight years, Father Bernie and I spent a lot of time together, lot of late night coffee runs to the donut shop, which was his favorite place, that and the big boy restaurant. And um, I learned a lot from him. He was Roman Catholic and I was Lutheran, so we had a lot of discussions and a lot of debates. Um, The truth is, we never came to see eye to eye on a lot of things. I learned, But he did help dispel for me a lot of my misconceptions about Roman Catholicism as a Protestant. He also helped confirm for me that I am, in fact, a Lutheran. <laughs> but what we did agree on, when we could not agree on anything else, was the lordship of Jesus Christ and the absolute authority of the Scriptures in our faith and life. In our final face-to-face meeting the day I was approved for ordination, as the end of my seminary training approached, we spent a lot of time that late night drinking coffee and eating donuts and talking about what was to come. And he fixed me with his eye, as he would sometimes do, because one of his doctorates was law, and he was actually a lawyer who could argue before the Supreme Court. He fixed me with his eye and he said, Brett, if I was your professor... You can be sure. You could not graduate until you could preach a substantive sermon on the shortest verse of scripture. And I said, "What which verse is that?" And he said, "Jesus wept." After I moved away and he moved away, he went to Rome to serve Benedict for several years. We kept in touch by phone. Every couple of months or years, we would call each other and catch up on what was going on. When a former body I belonged to stepped away from the authority of Scripture, he was the first to call and console me from Rome, where he made sure I knew he had his feet up and he was drinking a glass of wine while he overlooked the the Tiber. But when last I called him reached out to him when he had moved back to the United States and was a professor at the University of Indiana, I found that um, his heart condition had caught up with him. And since our last phone conversation, he had suffered a heart attack and gone to meet the Lord he loved so much. It's been 16 years since my late professor gave me the assignment of preaching on this text, and it's come and gone several times in the lectionary, and I've always focused on other parts of this piece of Scripture that we just heard. But as I was preparing for today, the Lord convicted me that it was time to finish my assignment and focus on those two short words of Scripture. Jesus wept. So I hope that Father O'Connor, from his seat in that great cloud of witnesses can hear what I'm saying. Recently, a scientist, a very famous scientist, Neil deGrasse Tyson, was doing an interview. And in a phrase that maybe is striking people as inappropriate during a pandemic, uh, an interview that went viral on the internet, he um, He made the comment in passing that he could not square belief in an all-powerful and all-good God with the world as he saw it. Because there was too much suffering and evil in the world for him to believe in that thing. And a God like that. Well in a wonderful um, commentary a YouTube commentary I thought a young apologist did a good job of dissecting his comments I will after this worship service post a link to that on both our Facebook and YouTube pages Um, but one of the things that this young man lifted up was that while this is a powerful emotional argument it is not an argument that holds water philosophically or theologically And this is acknowledged by atheists and agnostics alike. Um, The discussion started about that in the 1950s. There's been lots of discussion in the intervening 70 years or so. And uh, everyone has come around to agree that that's not a valid argument against an all-powerful and all-good God. But since there's books and books written about that, and I don't have time for that this morning, um, I won't get into all the details of why it's invalid. But I will say, because it's a powerful emotional argument, I'm going to address it in today's sermon. I'm going to break it into its component parts, suffering and evil. First of all, suffering. The incompatibility of suffering with an all-powerful and all-good God only works if you assume that avoiding suffering is the ultimate good, that there are no goods that supersede it. Indeed, It's an objection that didn't arise till very recently because it's only been till very recently that human beings began to expect we were entitled to a life without suffering. It's why this objection comes from the pampered old world. The richest countries in the world are the ones who tend to bring this kind of objection. The poorest countries in the world don't because they know that suffering is part of the human lot. Only when you have ready access to painkillers of every sort from aspirin to anesthesia can you possibly begin to think that a normative way of life would be a life without suffering. But suffering is deeply unpleasant and we wish to avoid it and it feels evil to us when we're experiencing it. So we must ask ourselves, what could supersede avoiding suffering as a good But we don't need to ask that question about God. We know from our own experience that there are things that we place in value above suffering. Things for which we willingly suffer in order that those other goods might be attained. In the perhaps most trivial level, every day people suffer a little bit from the arches in their feet to aches in the back to the, the feeling of plucked nose hairs, that is a pain like no other. I, I swear that nose hair nerves are connected directly to the center of the brain, to the discomfort of having your hair pulled back all day. People suffer just so they can look a little more beautiful for the day. It's a small amount of suffering, but one unwillingly undertaken. Others, in a more substantive way, suffer aches in the joints and muscles because they're working out, hoping a little suffering now can be traded off against great suffering later through improved health. Improved health is a higher good than that level of suffering. But at the far other extreme, our soldiers and our first responders every day court suffering in the most visceral and painful ways, they they court maiming and even death, that a good cause might triumph for, that the innocent might be protected and saved. So there are goods that are higher than suffering, than avoiding suffering. Rather, so a perfectly good God could permit suffering, that those other goods might be attained. And one of those goods is the triumph of evil over good. And that brings us around to why would an all-powerful and all-good God permit evil? First of all, it's important that Christians frame the question that way. See, there's no part of the Orthodox Christian message, the message rooted deeply in the Scriptures, that can be sacrificed without making nonsense of the rest of it. And the doctrine that the world was not created for suffering and evil, but rather that suffering and evil entered through our willful disobedience or the willful disobedience of our primeval parents, means that God is permitting evil, not that God designed the world for evil. So why would God permit evil? Well, there's so many different types of evil. Again, whole books have been written about it. That's not something I can tackle tonight, but I'm going to or this morning. So I'm going to tackle one particular thing right now. And that's the evil that comes from humanity, which is most of the evil in the world. Because evil is more than just something difficult, it's more than suffering or pain. Evil is the inversion of good. It is the absence of good into which vacuum something else rushes to fill it. Sociologists and psychologists and philosophers and theologians have studied human evil for centuries and in particular in the wake of the 20th century that perhaps most glaring evil of all that they have studied is genocide. Genocide. Books like Chris, Christopher Browning's, um, I'm going to forget the name of it, his book, Ordinary Men, which talked about the, the Nazi final solution in Poland and followed the trek of a normal local police force, the good guys, and how in a few short months they became the bad guys, the worst of bad guys. The Making of the Rape of Nanking, which covered what the Japanese did in China during World War II. Elie Wiesel's Night, or Alexander Solzhenitsyn's Gulag Archipelago, all of these books gave us an up-close and personal look at the depths to which humanity could sink. all those philosophers and theologians and psychologists and sociologists, here's what they all agree on. After studying this consummate human evil, what they all agree on is this, that the perpetrators of the worst evil in the world are not mega-villains. They're ordinary people, ordinary men, as Christopher Browning called his book people like you and me. That's a hard, hard reality to acknowledge about ourselves. It's something we don't want to look directly at and most of us would remain naive to it if we possibly could. As Emily Dickinson said, tell the truth, but tell it slant. Don't let me look too directly at that awful reality about myself. But as I heard one theologian say recently, he said, I couldn't get out of middle school with all of the social politics and all the things and changes that come at that time in life without realizing two things. In my heart, I was an adulterer and a murderer, no matter what else I did with my body. There are lots of well behaved people in the world, but there are not necessarily good people in the world. As Solzhenitsyn said, the dividing line between between good and evil runs right through the strait of through the center of every human heart god tolerates evil because he tolerates us if we would be saved god must tolerate evil in the world and perhaps one of the higher level goods that god is hoping for out of all of this is that we would learn that to see the seeds of hell planted in our own hearts and though we are made in the image of God in that good and perfect image, to know that that image and those seeds lie side by side there and that daily with every action we must choose between one or the other, making the world a little bit better place or a little bit worse or maybe if we're in the right position making it a lot better place or a lot worse. evil must be tolerated by God that we might have the opportunity to be transformed more and more into His image with His help. And that is the final and most important higher good for which God would tolerate suffering and evil in a world He did not design for that. It's our reliance on upon God, our trust in God that is the highest level good. Jesus alludes to this directly in today's reading. He's glad that he didn't make it to save the life of his beloved friend Lazarus so that his disciples first and then the family next and now us centuries later could come to believe that is to trust in him not even when times are darkest, but especially when times are darkest. That's how we encounter Mary and Martha today. I'm sure there were fervent prayers for the healing of their brother Lazarus, prayers they thought had not been answered. Their words sound accusatory, don't they? If you had been here my brother would not have died. How many times have anyone in gospel ministry encountered a grieving family with just those words on their lips and in their minds? If God had been there, my loved one wouldn't have died. But the higher thing we need to learn to do than to trust in Christ's healing is to trust in Christ Himself So that we can learn, not that He will always save us in this life, but rather that He is the resurrection and the life. And that whoever trusts in Him, though he die, yet shall he live, and whoever believes in Him shall never die. Not in any meaningful way. This... Is the highest level good because whatever else we believe or know about heaven, what we know is this from the book of Revelation, that in heaven or the, the world to come, however you like to talk about that in your own Christian walk, we're told that in the city of God, in that in that beautiful poetic image, that there is no sun and no moon, for the Lamb, Jesus, is the light that illumines everything. In that world to come, the glorious presence of God is inescapable. It's going to be the very air we breathe. In this world, our dependence on God could be hidden from us. We could even deny He exists if we want to. There that won't be possible. And if we have not learned to love and trust that presence, that person, but are going to be combative about it forever... Well, in fact, that's one of the more persuasive descriptions of hell that I've ever heard. Hell being not eternal separation from God, but the eternal presence of God to those who hate Him and rebel against Him. For we are told that our God is a consuming fire. We must, we must decide whether that fire Will warm us as though we've come in from a cold winter day, or roast us because we insist on fighting against Him. We must learn trust and faith in God. That is the highest good for which God might tolerate evil and suffering in this world. And yet, To bring it back around. Though God willingly seems to permit suffering and evil. Jesus, even in saying that he's glad he wasn't there to save his friend, when confronted with the reality of his friend's tomb, Jesus wept. Wept at the necessity that would make a precious child of God need to experience suffering or evil. Necessity because it was what is required that they might be saved. Jesus wept. He wept for Lazarus. He wept for you. He wept for me. He wept for a hurting world. And more than simply weeping for us. In Christ, God weeps with us. Far from standing at a distance and simply decreeing it must be so, in Christ, God enters into our humanity that all the suffering and all the evil we experience, He might take into Himself at the cross. So that when our time comes to experience suffering and the ultimate evil of death, there might be no condemnation for us who are in Christ Jesus. For he had absorbed and taken it all and given to us his own righteousness and eternal life. Jesus wept. But he is leading us on to a place where there is no suffering and no evil and finally no weeping. For the Lamb is the light there of the city of God. Will you join me for a word of prayer? Gracious and holy God, in this time we have... Indeed, in the midst of this crisis, seen that dividing line of good and evil running straight through the center of our humanity. We have seen medical workers who daily risk infection, not only of themselves, but of carrying diseases home to their loved ones who may have some of those underlying conditions that make people so vulnerable. We have seen, on the other hand, of precious resources by people who don't look left or right, maybe don't even know the names of their neighbors, but simply want to stockpile what they will need to survive without attention to others. We We have seen so much, Lord, that reminds us and convicts us of the seeds of hell we have in our heart, but the glory of God that you have called us on toward. We thank you that you have chosen to weep for us and with us. And we ask, O Lord, that you would give us your heart, that we might look upon the world around us and weep for it and with it, In the midst of this crisis, grant us courage, O Lord, to go out, to take the risks, not foolishly, but the risks that must be taken, that greater good might ensue. Let us trust in you alone in the darkness of this time. And let us turn and serve one another with love, sharing everything we have that all may come through and you may be glorified. These things we ask in the precious name of our weeping Lord and Savior, Jesus the Christ. Amen. Be thou my vision, O Lord of my heart. Pray not be all else to me, save that thou art. Be thou my vision stars in the day and the night, waking or sleeping, thy presence my light.